week that I'm not preaching, I wish I was preaching. And, uh, but it's great to have a team that fills in, so thank you, Paul and, and, and Pastor Earl and for filling in. It was, uh, it's great to hear from you guys as well. Well, I wanted to say a couple things today. The hymn sing, I'm going to share a portion of Israel with you, um, just one of my biggest lessons, and it's going to be probably about 10 to 15 minutes long. But in March, we're going to have a, um, uh, a potluck, and there is where I'm going to share a bunch of my pictures and things like that. I've got thousands of pictures, and I'm trying to filter through because um, a thousand-picture slideshow would get really boring really fast. Even though Israel's a really cool place, it would just... You know, you start to nod all that food, and you'd start to nod off. So, anyways, uh, we're, I'm planning for that February. There's a lot of things coming up. Uh, Super Bowl is next week. There's a lot of things happening. We're we're just going to push that off to uh, to March, and uh, it'll give me time to filter through some photos as well. But I just wanted to thank you for that. What an amazing trip! What an amazing opportunity as a pastor to visit that land and to actually see all these different things that Scripture talks about, and really is so clear once you're there and you're standing on the hilltops where things happened. It's so clear, all the things that come up. So it's just, it's just incredible. But I want to continue on with this series. We're on the Sermon on the Mount series. We're going through the Beatitudes. And this series, literally, or this sermon literally is one of the toughest sermons I think Jesus ever taught because there are some paradigm-changing deals in this sermon. There are some big things that Jesus tackles. That they're, the, the, the Jewish consciousness just would have had a difficult time with. And today we're going to tackle one of those things. And, and I just wanted to recap a little bit if you have not been here the last few weeks. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So blessed or assured, we could use the word blessed and assured here almost interchangeably. Blessed or assured are you that you realize your need for God. That's blessed are the, are the poor in spirit. And, and Jesus sort of has a progression of these and a line of these. So blessed are those who mourn. So blessed or assured are you because you are deeply concerned in caring for others, so much so that you mourn over them. <clears throat> blessed are the meek, last week's message, so blessed or assured are you who surrender to God. Meek can also mean somebody who is tamed by God's will. So blessed are you who have so surrendered yourself to God that now you are operating in God's will. And so Jesus is giving these, and these would sort of be like the virtues of his kingdom, his manifesto. And, and it would have been a big deal to hear these at the time. So like I said, we could sort of use the word assured here interchangeably. Here Jesus is talking about the coming kingdom and what he wants his people to be like. The Beatitudes are almost like virtues of kingdom people. And so it's not this list of things that we have to do, but it's these virtues of people that we become once we start following Jesus. And so he's starting to list these virtues over and over and over again. So before we get into today's virtue or beatitude, I just want to read Isaiah chapter 61. And it'll be up on the screen if you have a Bible, flip there with me. Um, it's actually a pretty important chapter in the Bible because Jesus constantly references Isaiah 61. So if you're on the, the app, uh, we do the Bible app here. So you just go there to live and it'll come up there as well. So Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, and to comfort all who mourn, 
to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, planting of, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Aliens and will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations and in their riches you will boast. Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. And they will inherit a double portion of their land. And everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. In my faithfulness, I will reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations. Their offspring around me, the peoples, among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that these people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation, and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for the soil makes the sprout come up. A garden causes seeds to grow. So the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before the nations. I know that's a long chapter there. It's a long verse. But one of the things we need to understand about Isaiah 61 is that Jesus references this, uh, this chapter a number of times. In Luke chapter 4, remember he goes to his hometown Nazareth and he actually opens the scrolls. He looks for Isaiah 61 and he reads from it. And then he says, today the scriptures have been fulfilled in me coming. In other words, this messianic chapter, the chapter that describes what the land will be like once the, the Messiah comes, is fulfilled in me. So this messianic chapter happened when I came. So all this stuff that's happening, this is what my people are going to do. Oaks of righteousness, uh, they clothe me in an array of righteousness. I'm going to make an everlasting covenant with them, a covenant in his blood. Loving justice, uh, make righteousness and praise spring up before the nations. Three times the word righteousness is talked about in here. And also the word justice. And one of the things that we're going to talk about a little bit today is the word righteousness and justice are almost interchangeable in the, in the Hebrew, in the way that they're used here. So Jesus said, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And he's quoting Isaiah 61. And then a little later in, in Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist uh, is commissioned to death, is sentenced to death. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus and says, are you the one or should we expect somebody else? And Jesus gives him a quote. He quotes back to them the, the Bible. He says, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached. And he's quoting Isaiah chapter 61. And so two times already, Jesus is quoting Isaiah 61 in reference to himself. He's saying, remember that, that's me. What Isaiah prophesied, what Isaiah was talking about, that is me coming to you. And the point is that Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And so once we flip to Matthew chapter 5, verses, uh, verse 6, 
Jesus says this, after all the other blessings, the three blessings before, he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And remember when we talked about Isaiah 61, the the different words that are talked about using righteousness. Instead of a spirit of despair, they will be called oaks of righteousness. These are the followers of Jesus will be called oaks of righteousness. In other words, immovable people. Because oaks, if you've ever been next to one, are pretty hard to move. And if you live in Glendora or Azusa or something, you really can't move it because the city will come after you. Um, But they continue to go on. Lord, love justice. In my faithfulness, I'll make an everlasting covenant. He keeps going. He's going to clothe us and be arrayed with robes of righteousness. And God is going to make righteousness and praise up before all the nations. In other words, followers of Jesus will be praising him in all of the nations. And in Matthew chapter 5, at the beginning of his sermon, he says, blessed are those who hunger and who thirst for righteousness. Many um, biblical scholars and, and people who make, who've written commentaries on this verse say that Jesus is, is quoting Isaiah 61 here. But I find it fascinating that this is one of the messianic uh, chapters, the great messianic chapters of the Bible. In other words, this is saying, this is what the Messiah, what's going to happen when the Messiah comes. And all through Jesus' ministry, he quotes Isaiah 61, quoting it, quoting it, quoting it, quoting it, saying, this is here and now. My coming here is Isaiah 61. So let's dive into the meaning of, of the word righteousness. The word righteousness is a Hebrew word, tzedakah, uh, and they say it whenever they talk in Hebrew, it's like, <sighs> You know, like they're going to hawk a loogie or something. They just say, aha. It means justice that releases and restores the oppressed. Justice that releases and restores the oppressed. It could also have a meaning of salvation. It's this kind of justice that restores, justice that redeems. In other words, Jesus wants us to partner with him to be redeemers in this world. So blessed are those who hunger and thirst for restoring justice to the land. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for it. And I love that he uses the phrase hunger and thirst because oftentimes what is hunger, hungering and thirsting for righteousness can simply mean feeding somebody or giving somebody a drink who is thirsty or hungry. And that could fulfill that meaning. So blessed are you who join me in this work is what Jesus is saying here. Because it says, you will be filled. When you hunger and thirst for this, you will be filled. Blessed is the person who seeks to rescue the oppressed. Righteousness here, (coughs) excuse me, is about hungering and thirsting for the redemption of this world, for restoring a relationship with Jesus. And sometimes the question we ask is, who brings righteousness? Do we do righteousness on our own or is it God? Well, the answer is both. Through relationship with Jesus, God gives us the ability to be righteous people. We use Jesus' righteousness. Jesus has righteousness, and we use that to, to become right with God. In other words, he forgives us and cleanses us, and so we can have a right relationship with God, but also work towards the healing of the world. <clears throat> so Jesus says, blessed are these people who really hunger and thirst for it, who really desire for it, who want to see this happen. And Jesus gives clear examples of this in his teaching. I mean, one of the great things about the Sermon on the Mount is that he gives all these, and so many people call it idealism. He's always, Jesus is just being so idealistic in the Sermon on the Mount. He gives this idealism, what most people say, 
And then he actually lives it out in the rest of the Gospels. He tells stories. He shows people what it looks like to follow the Sermon on the Mount, to follow his core teachings. So flip with me real quick to Luke chapter 16. It's kind of a, um, this is one of these things that if you're reading the Gospel, you probably just kind of just as soon skip over this one because it's kind of tough teaching. It's sort of hard to hear. So Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Jesus tells a story. And it's interesting, he's talking about wealth and riches right before this. He tells a parable of a shrewd manager right before this. And then he tells a story about this guy named Lazarus. He says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple. And by the way, as I was reading through this this morning, I realized that I was wearing a purple sweater. (laughs) And I thought, why couldn't I have just chosen the black sweater this morning? Why well, do I have to choose the purple sweater? But actually, being dressed in purple in those days was a huge deal. They got the color purple from little snails that they found in the sea, and every, like, you couldn't even fill a spoon with the color purple that you would get, with the amount of purple dye that you would get crushing these snails. And they dug it out of a special root that grew in some kind of turnip um, in Greece. There was very few of these, and it was very expensive to be dressed in purple. So um, just to dye one garment purple could have used up a whole, I mean, we're talking about expensive stuff. They didn't have all the modern technology to, in like food coloring and dyes and clothing dyes and all that stuff that we have today. So there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked His sores. Gross, right? The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us us and you is a great chasm and has been here and you cannot, nor anyone else can cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house for I have five brothers. Let him warm them so they will not... also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. And I think this is Jesus being funny. We don't really get Jesus' humor, but I'll explain it in a second. No father, Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, then they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So this is Jesus, I think, making a point about his own death and resurrection, that um, if they're not going to listen to the prophets, in other words, the Jews at the time were not already listening to the prophets, they're not going to listen to Jesus if he rises from the dead. And so he's doing this foreshadowing deal here. But the interesting thing here is this story. There's one who lives in wealth, one who lives in poverty, one went to heaven, one went to hell. And the point that Jesus is trying to make here is this man never showed compassion. Jesus isn't trying to make a point about being wealthy or being poor. He's trying to make a point about enacting righteousness, enacting justice, enacting mercy, and actually showing it to people in an active faith, 
Not a faith that just says, oh, I believe, but I'm going to sit here, or I'm going to drive by this person and do nothing. Not a passive faith, but an active faith. And that's what Jesus didn't like here, was the the passive faith of this guy. Because if you were rich, you have to understand the mindset during this time. If you were rich, the belief was, God has blessed me. Look at all that I have. Look at everything that I own. God has richly blessed everything that I've done so that I could become a wealthy person. And, and the idea would have been, look at Lazarus. He's got sores, he's begging, and he just wants some scraps of food. He's a pitiful, unclean man. And the, the, God has not blessed him. God clearly, has, um, God clearly doesn't care about this guy, because look at where he's at. But who does God use to care for the poor? Bueller? Us, Right? I mean, I, I think so many times we might be on our knees saying, God, please send a bowl of rice to the children in Africa that are hungry and in need. And how many times do, do, God's like, well, I've already asked you to, to do that. You know, God's like, I already asked you to be the answer to your own prayers on this. I remember I was driving by this guy on the freeway, and every single day I used to work out in Pasadena. I used to drive by this guy who held a sign. And I used, my heart would just break for him. And, and one day... I was just praying for him. I said, God, you just got to do something about this guy. You got to do something about homelessness. My heart was breaking. And, and the response I got from God, I mean, I never really heard God audibly, but just in my conscience was, why don't you do it? You're here. You've got five bucks in your pocket. Why don't you do it? And I was like, oh, God, you must be wrong because that's my lunch money. You know, <laughs> there's a $5 special at Rubio's today. You've got to be kidding me. And he was wrong. I'm kidding. He wasn't wrong. So I stopped, gave the guy the five bucks. And this, I'm not trying to tout what I did, but simply that sometimes we pray, God, please help this person. But when God really wants you to be the answer to your own prayers, God really wants you to do that. And that's what it looks like to restore justice to some people. And other people, it's going to look differently. But that's just a common example of people that we see around in our, in our day. I grew up in a church where whenever we heard uh, those, and, and, and even Gordon, whenever we heard those, we just prayed for whatever happened. So would you just stop with me real quick, and let's, let's just pray for Father, we just pray for whatever happened, whether it's an accident or somebody at home that needs meds, we just pray that you'd have your hand on that situation. In your name we pray, amen. Anyways. Jesus is focusing on tangible justice, tangible things that we could all do to, to help other people out. Because part of loving God is loving other people. Part of loving God is loving God's creation. And that's what, what Jesus is talking about when he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for this kind of righteousness because they're going to be filled. So the story of Lazarus, rich man, highlights this kind of justice that God wants from us. When your life is over and you're standing before God, do you want him to say, hey, you hungered and thirsted after feeding your own self, your own ego, but you knew nothing about my righteousness. You knew nothing about restoring justice. You knew nothing about releasing the oppressed, the fatherless, the widows. You knew nothing about that. Our world administers justice very differently than Jesus did. If we about the way justice is administered in our world, what do we think about? We think about trials, we think about court cases, we think about stuff like that, right? And and our world is just very different in the way that it handles justice. 
Um, we do it through politics. We do it through uh, different avenues. But we don't bring restorative justice through politics, different laws and things like that. And some of them might be good laws. Some of them might be bad laws. But the main core of it is that the followers of Jesus are the ones that are going to bring restorative justice into this world. The ones who forgive mightily. Because does our justice system forgive? No, and we don't even really want it to, to be honest. We want people to get what they got coming to them. So my point is, we are the ones that bring forgiveness. We are the ones that bring restoration because God has enabled us. Um, One of the things I wanted to tell you guys today is one of the very first creation stories ever told. Now, many of you probably know the Bible is not the only creation story. Every single culture has their different creation narratives, and it informs what they believe about God and what they believe about the world. For example, Americans believe that the world came on the back of a turtle, right? And through science has absolutely proved that. I'm just checking if any of you are paying attention. Science has not proved that. Um, there are, good, some of you are. But there's other creation stories that were actually um, relevant in this time. And, and the Jews would have known some of these other creation stories. They would have known about these other gods because, remember, they lived in a land that they were taken away by Babylon. They were taken away by Assyria, and they had Rome in their land, so they had all these other religious systems in their land. So they would have known some of these other creation myths. And one of these myths I want to tell you is, is a Babylonian creation myth, and I think that a lot of Jews would have known this because of their exile to Babylon. So let me just tell you this, and I'm going to contrast some justice here and what it means to be righteous. Um, and unfortunately, I think a lot of our world buys into this creation story, even though we don't even know it, versus the creation story that God gives us in the scriptures. Let me, let me tell you this story. Apsu and Tamat were a father God and a mother God. Okay, and they, the belief here is that they were the first two gods. This obviously Babylonian creation myth, so you know that, get that in your head. So before um, all things, there were these two gods. And uh, they gave birth to a number of other gods, and there was their, they were their children, and their children were loud and annoying and rambunctious. And Absu and Tamat said, we cannot sleep anymore. This is really annoying, we can't sleep. So they plotted the murder of all their children. And the, the kid gods got word of this. They got word that they were going to be killed. And so what they decided to do was that they said they plotted their revenge and they were going to kill their parents before they got to them. And so they killed Apsu. Apsu was the father god. So they killed Apsu, but they couldn't get to Tamat. And Tamat was so filled with rage and so filled with anger that she was planning on killing all of her children right there. And she was the most feared. She was the dragon of chaos. And that's the way she was known, the dragon of chaos. So she was so overcome with rage that she plotted the death of her son and of all of her children right then and right there. But all the kids turned to the youngest son named Marduk. And Marduk, not Marmaduke, who's a dog in cartoons, totally different guy. Marduk, Marduk said, I will do it, but only if all of you will bow down and worship me, and I will be the one true God. And so they said, yes, we're so scared, do whatever. And so he went to go capture Tamat, and he captured Tamat, and the the story goes that he blew an evil wind into her belly. Almost like the, our creation story of God breathed air into our nostrils. I just think it's interesting. And then an arrow pierced her heart and her, 
cadaver, her carcass was spread open, and that is what created the heavens. And that is what created the earth. In fact, all living kind, all the earth was created from the cadaver of a dragon. Obviously not true, um, but the whole idea is that Marduk said, okay, now that I've created people, because he created people out of this cadaver as well, now that I've created people, I need to set up kings and queens. And what I need to do is I need to authorize violence and force as a means to restore order. So this entire creation narrative is that if you kill chaos, then order will come. And, and this is what's been taught for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And this is actually, this entire plot line is at the story of every single blockbuster movie and every children's TV show, every detective show, everything we ever see on TV these days. The whole idea is that justice will come when order is restored by means of violence. In fact, I've got a couple of videos. I just want to show you guys some cartoons, and I'm going to ruin cartoons for the rest of your life. I'm sorry. But I just wanted to show you some cartoons. Becky, do you have those ready? All right. Two minutes of cartoons. You guys remember this one? procured some green kryptonite, and its deadly effect on you is well known. You're finished, Superman. Before I'm done, the world will tremble at the name Lex Luthor. Super ventriloquism. A crude deception, but satisfactory to fool your great intellect. (laughs) 
So I find cartoons just as entertaining as any other person, and I'm not trying to say don't watch cartoons or don't watch TV or any of that stuff. All I'm trying to say is know what goes on behind that. There's actually a theology behind that. And I was giving a talk one time on uh, the myth of redemptive violence, and somebody told me, I can't play video games anymore. I can't um, watch TV anymore. It was months afterwards, like, without even thinking about this creation story you talked about, because it's so true that, that this idea is that justice is restored once we beat up the bad guys. And that's what we're taught in life, right? And what Jesus is saying here is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, a restorative justice, a justice that restores order. Now, in this creation narrative, and they make a lot of fun stories, don't get me wrong. In this creation narrative, I mean, in every single Bond movie and anything that's been popular, it's the same exact storyline. It's the same exact plot. Once you beat the evil bad guy by means of violence, then order gets restored, right? Anything you watch. And that's what our society begins to tell us. We buy into these lies and we buy into these myths. And so when we think about it, we're like, oh, yeah, restore justice? Yeah, I'll go beat up the bad guys. What did Jesus tell us to do? Simply love your neighbor as yourself. In the story, what does the story of Lazarus tell us? What would have restored justice there? To provide for people who can't provide for themselves, to stand up for people who speak for those who don't have the words to say. That's what Jesus calls us to do. That is the kind of redemptive work that we're called to do. And so many times we buy into these. And I'm not trying to make any statements on war because there's times when war, are nece- when war is necessary and even though we pray for peace. I'm not trying to make any statements about that. All I'm simply trying to say is that sometimes we buy into false notions of what it means to restore justice in our society. Restoring justice might even mean economically for people. It might mean you hunger and thirst to help those who economically need some help. It might, it might mean a number of different things. It might mean that you take up the cause of the fatherless, the widow. It might mean that you go to homeless shelters and help out there. It might just simply mean that guy at the grocery store that you see every single time, that you buy him a loaf of bread and a pack of turkey or something. That could be what it means. But there's different ways to restore justice and righteousness. And Jesus says, blessed are you assured are you. In other words, assured of your salvation, assured of your life with me. If these virtues, if this is what you hunger and thirst for. I think so many times in life we have goals. We set up life goals, right? Uh, how many of you have goals? Just middle mining goals, maybe like in career, in life, or whatever. And if you, if you focus after those enough, you'll get there. That's the whole idea of goals, is that you fixate on them, and you get there. And I think Jesus was even trying to give us that picture too because he says when you hunger and thirst for something, you're going to get it. And when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll get it. When you hunger and thirst for all these other goals, you're going to get those too. But what's the really, really, what's the thing that matters here? What's the thing that really has kingdom significance here? Do we as a people really hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice, for the, the oppressed? Or do we have distorted ideas of justice? So many times we buy into the Marduk and Tamar, um, uh, Tamat, Tamar is a biblical character, Tamat um, uh, idea of creation. That in order to restore justice, we just need to beat up the bad guys, right? 
So I'm pretty sure I, I, I will ruin action shows for you. You're going to know exactly how it ends. I mean, think about the show Get Smart. Remember that show back in the, was it, I used to watch it as a kid with my parents, um, the reruns. But there's chaos and control, right? Anyways, I just think it's funny. Same storyline, thousands of years. But what will our actions show that we hunger and thirst for? What is it by your actions will show, by your active faith? What does that show for people? What does that show your family? What does it show your world that you hunger and thirst for? What does your bank account show that you hunger and thirst for? What does your home show that you hunger and thirst for? What do your relationships show that you hunger and thirst for? All of that is revealing. All of it reveals our character and who we are. And God simply says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness that restores being a community restorer, being somebody who work to, works towards the good of others. Sometimes we hunger and thirst for revenge instead of justice, being right instead of submitting to others, money instead of people. By the way, that's probably what the rich man, his problem was that he chose money over people. And Jesus, right before that, is a very interesting study in Luke chapter 16. He, he talks about... Um, he, he talks about this guy who, who was a shrewd manager. He chose people over money, and then the next story is choosing money over people. I just think it's fascinating what Jesus does. But sometimes we choose money instead of people. Sometimes we choose sex and lust instead of real commitment and real marriage. But I think the question today is, will you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Or are you simply going to be content with the same old thing? Because the promise of this beatitude is what you hunger and thirst for, you will receive. Let's pray. Jesus, today there's so many things that each of us hunger and thirst for. God, there's so many differing things. God, so many times in our life, it, it really just doesn't even match up with your will and what you want for humanity and what you want for people. God, simply what you want for us to do. So God, I pray that there's some of us here today who might be hungering and thirsting after the wrong things. And Lord, only you can convict us of that. Only you can reveal that to us in our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us if we are just hungering and thirsting after the wrong things. And God, would you give us a passion? Would you light a fire under us? God, would you move us towards hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for justice that restores, for bringing hope to this world? God, we just want to partner with you. God, we want to serve you. We want to work with you in order to reach this world, to restore the world to a knowledge of you, to a relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you would let our faith be active. God, that you would activate us. So not only would we believe that you are good, but that we would act upon it as well. Father, we, all these things we lift up to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.